Hello and welcome to the Open Labour Podcast. I'm joined as always by my fellow co-host, Tom Hinchcliffe. Hiya, Tom. Hello, James. How's it going? I'm okay. The sun's shining here in um, in North Leeds. Is it where you are? I suppose you're in North Leeds as well. I'm in North Leeds as well. Costa del <laughs> It's Costa del North Leeds here. Yeah. Well, I'm very much looking forward to finishing work. Uh, albeit later than usual, but uh, I shall be trying to enjoy a bit of the more clement weather. Mm, yeah, I mean, in the backdrop of World War Three, which we're going to talk about, it's um, pretty nice at the minute. Yeah, well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, we're in the midst of another atrocious crisis, waking up every day to see people in their thousands suffering. You know, I, th- I thought the Great Recession austerity, successive Tory governments and COVID-19 was bad enough, but but this seems to pale in comparison. Since we started this podcast, I'm convinced. It's our own. I know. Every every podcast is something awful. I mean, we've got to wait until 2024 until we can do a podcast about Labour winning and, and having a bright future. Until then, it's been pretty, it seems like things are going to be pretty bleak. We can do one after the local elections in May. It'll be fine. Yeah, fingers crossed for the local elections in May. I'm not counting my chickens yet. Although, of course, publicly, I will be saying that we're going to wipe the floor with uh, with the Tories and the Lib Dems and the Greens. But uh, I think things will hang in the balance. We will do a, a local government or local elections rather podcast, won't we, in the lead up as we usually do? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I, I don't know what your thoughts are, are on this, Tom, but Open Labour's reason for being is essentially a, a passionate and unwavering belief in the principles of inclusive democracy and freedom of speech, albeit in the context of the Labour Party. But of course, those principles extend outside of the Labour Party and and into the real world as well, don't they? So I can't speak for everybody in open Labour, but I I would like to say that everybody in, well, I'd like to hope that everybody in open Labour would stand in solidarity with those who are so bravely opposing the invasion of Ukraine, which in in short is an attempt by an authoritarian regime to undermine democracy. But I think it's also worthwhile saying as well that we also stand with with the Russian public, many of whom do oppose this war and have also been subjugated by Putin's corrupt and inequitable administration. Am I out of order for saying that? No, I think it's right. I'd go further. I'd go further and say if you you stand anywhere near... Um, the defence of uh, corporatist right-wing kleptocracy like Vladimir Putin's regime in Russia that you you, you shouldn't be anywhere near the Labour Party. I think mm-hmm. it's um, it's pretty clear. I'm glad the leadership set that out for our own MPs. Um, yes. when, it comes, when it came to stop the war, who who suddenly when there's a war in Europe um, decided not to talk about that war. Um, it's very strange and, and quite typical. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely in agreement and we'll go further that people... If, if you do think, if you are listening to this and you do think Putin has any sort of reason to invade Ukraine and kill civilians and bomb maternity wards and bomb nurseries, then don't listen to this podcast. Yes, please switch off if you think that Putin does have the right to commit war crimes as he has done, because this is not going to be a good podcast for you. Maybe we should say something about the refugee crisis. For me, I believe the government has completely mishandled this. We're going to be speaking to Julie Ward later in the podcast. She is our guest for today. People will know that she was a former MEP, but she was actually in Ukraine just days before Russia invaded. So she's got a incredibly interesting, but also very personal and heartfelt experience to share. So I think the podcast is well worth listening to to, for everyone all the way to the end because her experiences really do bring home 
some of the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine and, and make it more personal. Yeah, yeah. I know we're going to get on to um, the refugee crisis in some more human detail later on with Julie, but um, the, the, today the, um, the Homes for Ukraine scheme um, is finally, <laughs> finally open for application. Finally. Two and a half weeks after the... Uh, the invasion that we already knew was going to happen. I mean, it's been imminent for months, if not longer, and it's almost like the government should have had something prepared, but they, yeah, they've chosen today to finally open it and have made it as difficult as possible for Ukrainian families, and 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 many of which consist of children, to um to to get to this country. Whereas uh, yeah. once again, we're not doing like we didn't in Syria and Libya. We're not taking our fair share. Um, you know, the biggest barrier. Uh, to Ukrainian families coming over is uh, excessive bureaucracy and an unbelievable yep. amount of red tape. Yeah, um, this unnecessary paperwork needs to go, and the government needs to realise that this isn't 2010 anymore. People aren't, you know, hell bent on just not seeing refugees or asylum seekers as a dirty word. People are really, you know, indebted and. Um, and really affected by this war and by Putin's Putin's hor- horrific actions in Ukraine. So I think the the you know ultimate generosity of the British people who have offered up their homes already and it's in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, they stand ready to do their job with local authorities who are ready to house these refugees that are coming from Ukraine. And the government have been too slow. And now that you know th- this this isn't good enough. I think you need to. It, there's so much red tape to the point where you need to know the name of the Ukrainian that you'd like to take in during a war that's not really how it works course, you know, not, that no. many displaced people that many records destroyed and that many communication links are severed that this is just this is unbelievably difficult and the british government the conservatives are just making it much more difficult than it needs to be so so what are the number of refugees um at the moment what is that figure i, I mean we're speaking now on the 18th of march I believe it was two million, but that was the last time I checked. Things move very quickly, don't they? Yeah, I think it's around two million displaced people. Whether they're still in Ukraine and they've headed to Lviv in the west, or whether they've made it over the border to Poland yet, um, that's another question. And yeah, it's it's only going to increase, especially after today when um, they've had rocket attacks on um, Lviv in the west, which runs the risk of a part aside from refugees spilling into the um, into NATO territory in Poland which will be, you know, extremely, extremely worrying. Um, so, yeah, it's about 2 million. Um, so far, the government have accepted under 100 um, Ukrainian refugees and given them visas because, as I said, they're making it as difficult as possible. Whereas in mainland Europe, um, they're making it as easy as possible. They, they've removed Absolutely. the red tape and they've taken thousands. Yeah. And it's um, not perfect. The response in Europe isn't perfect over Nord Stream 2 with Germany, which we come on yeah. to duly. But... In terms of the refugee crisis, this is typical of the Conservative government because we saw the same thing with Syria. Yes, um, and and it, it's it's a shame, uh, and it brings shame on the country that they when there's so many people in this country that are that are willing to open up their homes that it's taken them this long and they're still making it difficult. And I think they're making not just a big mistake morally on a humanitarian level, but also with the the feelings of the British people the the feeling out there in the public is that we should be doing more and I think this reluctance to do our duty and do our best uh, for those 
displaced Ukrainians, I, I think will come back to bite them. I think they're they're on this. This is not good politics from the Conservatives as well. They've misjudged the the how, the public feeling out there. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And um, this is a common theme at the minute with the Conservatives, not just on Ukraine, but in their general policy that they're, they're acting like it's, as I say, like it is 10, 10, 12 years ago again, and they can fight elections on the same issues. But I think in, in the local elections in May and, and, and thereafter, I think they'll soon realize that what they're doing is gonna, you know, impact that we'll, we're seeing what's happening to them in the polls. Um, yeah. And this is a common trend. So, uh, I mean, as much as they're doing the wrong thing, if they'd like to hand over um, to a party that do the right thing, then we're, we're ready. So. Seems that they're nothing without Dominic Cummings. Maybe it was all about Dominic Cummings in the first place, eh? Possibly, possibly. Possibly. Right, we shall move on now to our interview with Julie Ward. Thanks, Tom. And we're joined now by Julie Ward. Listeners will know that Julie was a member of the European Parliament from 2014 to 2020. Hi, Julie. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm OK. I'm, I'm really glad that you asked me to speak. Um, I've been a long-time friend of Ukraine, and so it's been mm. important for me to uh, raise up my voice um, well, to it, defend it, the people. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure to have you, and you you were highly recommended by a couple of our colleagues in Open Labour to come on. We we mentioned that we'll do in a podcast about the crisis in Ukraine, and everybody said, "Well, have you spoke to Julie about getting Julie on?" So it, it's great that you've accepted. I was just going to ask. Julie, before we do start, um, as I mentioned before, members will know that you are uh, an MEP for the North West for, for quite some time. But I, I've been trying to get in, well, we've been liaising, haven't we, via WhatsApp and via Twitter. And it, every time that I get in contact with you, you seem to be in a different country. So what are you up to these days? OK, so um, I actually have um, a part time job working for the Commonwealth Games at the minute. I'm uh, wow. I'm. Um, directing an international education program but it is only part-time and um, so the rest of the time I'm not ironing I'm really (laughs) busy engaged with a lot of the issues that I care passionately about so I'm campaigning you know I'm campaigning for refugees Uh, I'm still um, meeting with Uh, lots of European youth so that's both online but also at various conferences so I was in Tirana recently for the launch of the European Youth Capital Um, I obviously as you know I went to Kiev that was with uh, a particular delegation which we will talk about um, shortly and I've just come back from Iraqi Kurdistan where I um, was on a fact-finding mission uh, to uh, look at the evidence of Turkey's use of chemical weapons on um, uh, on villages in the border region. Wow, that's so interesting, Julie. It really is. You've um, you've taken on a lot, but it, what an interesting life you're leading at the moment. Yeah, I would still love to be doing my job in the European Parliament, though. Sure, and, and we'd love to see you there. Yeah, and sometimes it's very frustrating because, you know, for example, when I was in Kurdistan, I mean, I've been a long friend of uh, the Kurdish people and that's partly because yeah. I had a I had a big Kurdish diaspora in the northwest of England who you know who yeah, came to, sure. to talk to me to say please please speak up for our our people you know who are being attacked and mm. um, attacked by the Turkish state and so yeah I, I and sometimes I feel a bit frustrated that you know my voice can't be heard in the plenary anymore you know mm. and I was um, very proud that 
of, of my work record in the European Parliament, not just my work record, but Labour MEPs generally, and particularly us women Labour MEPs, sure. we were the most active mm. in, in the Parliament. Yes, well, as I said, we're, we're all very sad, especially in open Labour, that you aren't there representing us and, and fighting for our values in the European Parliament. But we've already had a podcast about uh, Brexit, so we won't get into that. We could go on about that for a long, long time. <laughs> oh, just, um, just before but, I... Sorry, Tom. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But what do you... You're in the Netherlands at the moment, overseeing the elections, are you not? Yes. So one of the things that I uh, did a lot of when I was an MEP was election observation missions. Mm. So... Um, I observed in fragile democracies such as Kenya, Kyrgyzstan, Madagascar, Kosovo, Pakistan. And um, I love that work. You know, I think if you're interested in quality democracy, um, then uh, seeing how elections work in other countries and being part of observation missions, it is part of um, helping to strengthen those democracies. And it, it also means that if observation teams are on the ground, um, uh, countries, governments are less likely to commit fraud. You know, they know that somebody's watching. Um, and subsequent to, um, you know, uh, and, the, and following Brexit, I obviously couldn't be part of any more parliamentary observation missions, but I joined an organisation called Democracy Volunteers. Mm. So, um, and I can't observe in the UK because I'm a Labour Party member. So <laughs> I observe for them uh, in other countries and we're here this week uh, observing the Netherlands municipal elections. Yeah. We must get you on to talk about that at another time, that's so interesting, it really is. Well these, these are election observers that the Conservatives are cutting back on sending to not just places in Europe but you know the, the, we, we had confirmation today that, that they're not sending election observers to Brazil where you know Bolsonaro mm. there is threatening to to not allow a peaceful transfer of power should there be one and things like that and 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 it's it's just a sign of the conservatives you know stepping back from the world stage where where we needed most and then it falls on people like julia volunteering um to do all this in, in place of the, of the uk government where they're cutting things like the westminster foundation for democracy mm-hmm. who've done great work in, in ukraine which we will get onto to ukraine in a minute. Yeah. um and, and and across europe and across across latin america and places like that where where democracies need strengthening most and transparency is really poor um so julie what 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 is the feeling on the seems that you've been in many eu member states for the last kind of few months what is the feeling on the ground when it comes to ukraine and and the sanctions that the eu parliament has taken um well the feeling on the ground in ukraine amongst my ukrainian friends you know they are grateful for the sanctions, but it has been too little too late from every country who've, you know, made sanctions. Um, and uh, yes, it, it's kind of, you know, pe- people are, are, are grateful, but it, it just came too late and it, it hasn't been enough. Uh, and we can see that it hasn't been enough to stop um, Putin. I mean, he's not stopping, is he? You know, so... Yeah. It has to hurt more in a way. And and this is really painful for many people who don't have a quarrel with the Russian, uh, you know, with citizens in Russia. I don't I don't have a problem with ordinary Russians. And um, I, I think that we have to remember that Putin doesn't speak for and act on behalf of 
you know, many Russian people, um, particularly young people, I have to say. And, and I was reading the other day about how many um, people involved in the sort of tech industry have been leaving. So Russia is losing its brightest and best people that, you know, they're going. You don't have to be um, in an office, you know, in Moscow or or, or St. Petersburg to run your tech company or to work for your kind of, you know, to work for a global company working on tech stuff. You can be anywhere in the world. And so, um, you know, and these people are leaving with a heavy heart. So, you know, you even if you have a government that you hate, right, you don't, you know, that doesn't represent you or doesn't speak for you, that doesn't mean that you don't love your country or that you don't love your culture, you know, and, and leaving anywhere is really hard for people. You know, we've we, we've seen waves of refugees leaving war-torn countries and, and leaving countries where climate change now, now makes life unsustainable. And for anybody to leave their home, their country, you know, um, their culture behind is a is 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 a real kind of rift. It, 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 it I think that we shouldn't underestimate how difficult that is. Yeah, and and I'm I'm very concerned generally, I suppose, about uh, a growing culture of uh, Russophobia in the same way that we've had Sinophobia. Yeah. Um, we have to guard against that, and we have to be really clear who the enemy is, you know. And it is it is Putin. It is the people around him, and it has been in the past the oligarchs who have funded and supported him, but they've been in London, for goodness think, sake. Yeah, you know? I, yeah, I think that's the important <laughs> point, isn't it? I mean, the widespread protests in Moscow and St. Petersburg and the major cities in Russia, have, even though you are under threat of being imminent, <laughs> immediately more or less arrested and arbitrarily detained in, in these cities in Russia, shows that, you know, this isn't been done in the way, in, in the name of the Russian people. And uh, Labour have been consistent about this for years because the Russia report came out in, I think it was 2018, and that made a series of 20-odd recommendations, um, you know, of, of specific sanctions, specific people that need to be sanctioned that are close to Putin's regime. And, yeah, they all reside or have own property in London and, and, and barely any of, until this, until the invasion, barely any of those recommendations were acted on by the Conservatives. So um, we, we should say as well that you were in Ukraine um, just before the invasion was launched. And, and did, did you, what was it like trying to get out? Was it just a normal flight? What's the feeling like in the airports? Was it rushed? Was, you know, were there a lot of people around? Okay. Um, we, we had booked a flight back, a cheap flight back on the Wednesday morning. And we had some intelligence on the Tuesday afternoon that caused us to change our plans from the Monday evening when we heard about Putin's writing into the Russian constitution, the um, acceptance, uh, the recognition of the republics in the Donbass, the Luhansk and Donetsk republics, that was a de facto declaration of war. It was very clear that that's what it was. That's how the people who we were with felt and the tension in the city and the tension and anxiety amongst the people that we were meeting with was really palpable. So we'd arrived in Kiev on the Saturday and um, it was the anniversary of the Maidan actually. So um, 
there were lots of commemoration activities happening, but there were also, there was also normal life going on. So for example, we were walking through the city and we went to a restaurant and um, uh, we came across a, a group of young people who were just doing like street dancing and some, and our guide said to us, um, oh, this happens every Saturday, you know? And so young people were still being young people and um, the shops were open and the cafes were open and, you know, there was just generally a, a sense of this is a European capital city. You know, there were tourists here. Um, you know, life is life is quite normal. And, and in fact, the mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, who we met on the Tuesday afternoon, had had been you know, very concerned to try and maintain that kind of normal sort of life, you know, in the capital city um, for as long as possible. But at the point where um, we got the news about Putin's signing um, into the, you know, the, the recognition. Um, we were actually at a meeting at the Center for Civil Liberties, and we were talking to a range of NGOs and um, human rights organizations. But also, very importantly, we were meeting with family members of Crimean Tatars who have been imprisoned by the Kremlin. And these people have been living for, and if you think that uh, the Crimea was annexed in 2015, and that is when the war started, right? People are, are talking about a war, but actually the war started in 2015. And, you know, the hostilities have not stopped um, in all the intervening years. So the Crimean Tatars, who are a minority, a Muslim minority in Crimea, you know, paid a terrible price for what happened there. Many of them have been disappeared. Their families don't know where they are. Um, you know, during the COVID, during COVID, they've been in very unsanitary conditions, you know, in prisons. People haven't been able to communicate, family members haven't been able to communicate with them. And it was, we were having a meeting with them when the news came through. And, you know, it, it just it just kind of ramped up that terrible mm. anxiety about one's loved ones. You know, we were meeting people who aren't political. You know, the daughter of um, a Crimean uh, teacher, for example. Yes, uh, a wife of a, a Crimean, you know, just a Crimean um, older citizen. Th these were the kinds of people that we were talking to at the point where that kind of historic moment happened. Um, and from there, we went to have a meeting with the social movement. So this is an amazing grassroots uh, movement of people on the left. So progressive um, activists on the left, including trade union leaders, transport workers, health workers, academic students, lawyers, uh, queer activists. You know, we, were, we were then went to have a meeting with this incredible group of people, you know, who are fighting corruption, who are critical of neoliberal policies, you know, but mm. are pro-European, are pro-European in that kind of critical way, which I, I felt I was and still am. I'm a member of another Europe is possible. And we always took a kind of, you know, we are pro-European. It's better to be in Europe, you know, better to be at the table and having uh having some power and making decisions and trying to think about how we can make Europe better for everybody and, and have a kind of social Europe, which is what I always felt yeah. I was defending. So having our meeting with them on the Monday night, 
was also, it was very, very important. And in fact, the meeting with the social movement was a kind of pivotal reason why we went in the first place, because those people have felt abandoned by the left in um, wider Europe, but particularly abandoned by many people on the left in the UK. And I don't count open Labour members amongst that, but there are people, um, we all know, um, on the on the left in the UK, um, who um, you know who are kind of ideologically wedded to anti uh, anti American sentiment. You know, regardless of the fact that Biden you know won and Trump didn't, and they're so wedded to this kind of idea of anti imperialist anti imperialism that they can't kind of they can't see past the end of their no their noses to um, to accept that Ukrainians might be in the same battle that we're in, yeah? So, you know, we have a, we have a horrendous right-wing government in the UK and we have to fight it. We have a right to fight it and to criticize it and to, you know, make a, make a social movement around that as well as a political movement. So we went primarily because those people had felt abandoned and they didn't think anybody was listening to them. And we wanted to be there and to have deep and meaningful dialogue with them and to demonstrate um, that uh, there is a, a large group of people who are progressive and left in the UK, you know, the labor movement and the trade union movement who are gonna stand with them in solidarity. And that is why we went. Can you just tell us a little bit more about how you got out? Tom did ask that, and um, I agree with everything that you've just said, but just out of interest, because I can't imagine what the scenes were like at some of the airports when panic set in. Okay. So this, our friends in the social movement who we'd met on the Monday night had offered to help us uh, get transport to the border if we needed it. Um we were still planning to get our cheap flight on Wednesday morning, but after um, after the announcement on uh, Monday night by Putin, and then following some intelligence that we got um, about the uh, likely invasion, we really felt that we had to leave as quickly as possible. So. Um, our very last meeting in Kiev was with Vitaly Klitschko and we left that meeting and um, took the very difficult decision then that we needed to leave that night. And um, it was almost impossible to find any flights. Um, you know, uh, it was, we also, one of our uh, delegation members um, uh, was a Ukrainian uh, uh academic and Yulia Yevchenko, uh, and she was going to stay because she was desperate to go and visit her mum in Venezia. So it was, it was quite a wrench in a way, realizing that the majority of us felt the need to leave. Um, we had had, in, you know, we'd, we'd been told by, basically by the British authorities that we needed to get out. And, um, uh, but this was going to be, you know, quite difficult because we, Julia wouldn't be coming with us. Um, and we actually drove to Borisville Airport not knowing if we'd be able to find a flight. Um, and the roads were absolutely packed with cars going to the airport and leaving the city. Um, our intelligence had uh, uh, suggested that the invasion was definitely coming within 48 hours. 
yeah and 48 hours could have meant six hours could have meant 12 hours could have meant 24 hours and we just didn't feel that we could even stay you know one more night um and when we got to Borisville airport uh we discovered there was a a flight to Istanbul um mm. we, we felt that we just needed to get out of the country so we didn't even have a forward you know we didn't have an onward flight we just literally yeah we we just booked flights in Istanbul and thought we'll sort the rest out you know when we when we land at the other end so that is how we left and I I I have a, a personal investment in Ukraine because I worked there um uh for a year before I was elected I was right. involved in a year-long cultural management exchange project with Ukraine in um 2011 and I have uh, friends who've been working in cultural institutions and in sort of civil society organizations right across Ukraine. And um, I'd even been staying with a friend in Kiev. I hadn't stayed in a hotel. I'd had a homestay. So I was mm. staying with my friend Daria and her husband, Mora, and their, their two-year-old child. You know, I was living, you know, in an apartment block on the outskirts of the city. And so for me, that moment of leaving was really distressing, I have to say. I couldn't really yeah. kind of keep it together because, uh, because I knew what was coming down the line. And you knew I, what you were leaving behind, sure. Yeah, what I was leaving behind. And we had actually been told to um, not tell anybody about the information that we had received. And as we were in the airport, I thought, I can't, I can't leave and not inform my friend Daria. Um, and I sent a message and I said, you must leave. You, you, you have to leave now. Yeah. You know, and I was thinking I would never forgive myself if um, Daria, uh, you know, if my friends hadn't been able, hadn't been I'm able to get out there. of Kiev. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But of course, you, of course what we wanted, well, I, I did, I, um, they, even as I was staying with them, they were beginning to put together a, a kind of like, you know, a, a, a pack of stuff for yeah. uh, to, to, to take with them if they had to flee. So by the front door in the flat, there were things like water bottles and um, camp beds and sleeping bags and um, like torches and mm. all sorts of things. And our, and our last night together there really, really did feel um, like we, we had a meal and, you know, we drank some... We drank some wine and, and the neighbor came in, but all of us kind of knew we were at a pivotal moment in history, yeah. you know, that um, what, what we were doing in this ordinary household in Kiev with this incredible young kind of pro-European professional family, you know, who have such hopes for the future and such hopes for their little boy as well, you know, sure. that he could he could enjoy kind of European, you know, the 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 advantages and the benefits of being European. Um, it it was a I don't know it 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 felt like a it felt like a really kind of crucial moment in both our personal friendship, yeah. but also a pivotal moment in Ukraine's history. I, I can and, see that. Yeah, I can. I mean. Um, anybody who's who's listening now will be able to tell the the emotion in your voice. I can't imagine what that would what that would feel like to be in that, in, yeah. as you say that that pivotal moment and be in the middle of history as as it unfolds in in front of you. Especially when you're receiving intelligence like like you did, the need to get out. I mean, you know that that makes it absolutely real, doesn't it? So they did leave. They did leave on the 
they would have left on the Wednesday, I think. On they uh, they drove towards the Polish border. Um, they went to pick up her mother, her elderly mother. They were within two hours of the border, and then the Ukrainian government decreed that all um, men between eighteen and sixty were yes. not allowed to leave. Yeah. So th- then they didn't know what to do. They didn't, you know, they were like, okay, what do we do now? We're, we can't be a family anymore if we cross the border, you know, should we stay, should we go? But I do, and then I kind of lost contact with Daria, but I, I'm now in contact with her again. So Morat joined the army and Daria and the baby and um, Daria's mum are all in Slovenia. And I can't wow. imagine what that must feel like, you know, to say goodbye oh. to your husband for a child, to say goodbye to his father, you know, not knowing whether you'll see them again. It's almost incomprehensible, isn't it? It, it really is. We, we could talk about this for, for the rest of the podcast because the mm. stories that you've got are so interesting and, and, and will really make this situation that's happening in Ukraine that, you know, when you watch it through your television set, sometimes it, it doesn't seem quite real. But I think this, the story that you've just told us really would bring it home to people. But we, we do need to ask you about some of the, the politics that are going on. And, and, and one of the things that we were really keen to ask your your opinion of having been in the European Parliament. Listeners will will know that um, on on the first of this month, Zelensky signed the application to become a member of the uh, EU. Now, the European Parliament in, endorsed that application. What are your thoughts on that? There's, of course, there's already the association agreement in place since 2014, which I believe that was signed in 2014, wasn't it? When when the last Ukrainian crisis, if if you could actually say that it that it ever stopped, ever ended, given that there's been a, a war ever since in the in the so-called LPR and, and DPR, but but it was signed in 2014 and enacted in 2017. What what what's this application? What does it mean? Is is it likely to be successful? Um, well, so I work in a lot of Balkans countries. I had a parliamentary responsibility for Bosnia, Herzegovina and Kosovo, by the way, when I was an MEP. And I'm still working in the Balkans quite a lot, um, supporting civil society, women and youth. And, you know, there are a number of Balkans countries who aren't yet a member of the EU. And I would say in many ways, and they're on a path, they're already, you know, going down that path. And um, I would say that Ukraine, in a way, um, is more of a suitable EU partner than some of the other countries that have been on that accession pathway. So, um, and and I say that not just because of my personal relationship with people in Ukraine, but when I was elected, um, I had no, I was not give, I was not on a delegation to Ukraine, but because of this personal investment in the country, I always took an interest in Ukrainian affairs. Sure. So, for, so for example, the very first speech I ever made in the plenary was about Ukraine. I've wow. been, you know, been thinking about that and been looking back over the work that I did. Um, I, I went to Ukraine to open a hospital in Ivankiv, which is a city just north of Kiev. Um, It's a hospital that uh, the EU paid for uh, to treat Chernobyl victims. And I also went to Chernobyl and saw the, you know, these the big um, cover over the over the damaged reactor. Um, 
And I, as a member of Parliamentarians for Global Action, which is a fantastic organization that works internationally to strengthen democracy uh, and to um, give parliamentarians tools to uh, ground their work more in human rights. I had actually also worked in Ukraine on um, supporting uh, parliamentarians uh, to make to improve laws around gender equality, LGBT rights, and all the rest of it. So you got very close links, Julia. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't well, know I that when we'd invited you onto the podcast. Actually, that just how but, close ties yeah. you have with Ukraine. So what, what I've what I've witnessed there is that Ukraine has. Now, some of the accession countries are doing better than some of the EU member states, right? In terms oh. of in terms of gender equality, you know, Poland, the, the pushback against gender equality and against um, LGBT rights in, in Poland and Hungary, for example, is horrendous. And I would say that my experiences in Ukraine meeting a lot, uh, there's a lot of quite young parliamentarians, for example, a lot of amazing women parliamentarians in Ukraine. I would say that Ukraine is already, in a way, exceeding some of the um, some of the requirements. It is a very poor country. Um, it definitely needs, you know, masses of um, aid in terms of, uh, you know, economic support and infrastructure. And I've travelled the country by road and train, uh, so I, you know, I know how poor it is. But um, but so was Poland, you know. So was Hungary. Those countries. Um, that were brought into the fold of the European family, you know, um, required an enormous amount of support and handholding and investment. Yeah. So my, my kind of view is that it, it is largely at the minute a symbolic act. Yeah. yeah? I think it was, I think it was extremely important. It sends out lots of, um, lots of important messages. Um, and, and I think also, I, I would just have liked to have seen that, um, you know, e easier, I, I suppose, easier accession for some of the other, um, Balkan, for some of the countries in the Balkans too, who've worked really, really, really hard, you know, on uh, anti-corruption, on strengthening their institutions, on governance, you know, on rule of law, all the things that the EU um, has, you know, has as kind of measures, if you like, you know, um, I, I would also like to have seen, you know, an easier pathway. So Serbia, for example, is quite far along the pathway, but I don't particularly consider Serbia to be a very pro-European uh, country that is, you know, upholding European values. In fact, Vucic is, you know, in hock to Putin half the time yeah. and, you know, fermenting trouble in Montenegro, for example. Yeah, so, and, and we all know Serbia's checkered past when it comes to integration with Europe anyway. I mean, so you don't, you don't necessarily agree with Spain's foreign minister then that said that any candidate country must meet certain social, political and economic standards because he was obviously saying that in reference to Ukraine's application. But there's some division in Europe that I can sense that it might just be a knee-jerk reaction to the invasion. Obviously, these countries and um, country, each respective country's government has to, you know, have this play with their own electorate. And if they're let, if they're allowing a country that like Ukraine into the European Union into the single market, 
into the customs union, that does have a direct effect on their economies, and they obviously have electoral um, uh, implications for, for, for each, each government. So do you think that might play a bit of a part as we go on with this? Um, yes, it will be. There'll be loads of heated discussions, both in the council and, uh, and in the parliament, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, Ukraine had already been given, you know, visas that, you know, Ukrainians had visas already, which I thought was, you know, um, I thought that was a good thing, even though that was a bit odd for some other countries, you know, and, and I think if, if we, if we, if we know and believe that Europe is fundamentally a peace project, and here we have a country that is being attacked, and is, you know, is at war, what, what can we do to help create peace and and you know and promote peace in Ukraine? Um, I, um, I I I felt that this thing about NATO is a kind of red herring in a way because you know NATO isn't the EU at all. It's two completely different things. Many EU member states are not in NATO. Um, you know and. Uh, you know, America is part of NATO and that's nothing to do with Europe. So I've always felt the confusion um, between the two ha uh, um, has, been, has been a problem, really. And um, uh, so, yeah. so talking about, yeah, so, so thinking about, um, try. I think if there could be a way, uh, you know, with the peace, because there are going to be, um, discussions between Ukraine and Russia. And, and I think if, in a way, if NATO was off the table, but EU membership was on the table, that might be more palatable, actually. You know, I mean, Putin's not going to like any of this, but NATO was has, has been flagged up for him as the big thing, hasn't it? That's yeah. been flagged up as the big thing. So take that off the table, because I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But this, um, you know, but but... But being on that journey, along with other, along with the Balkans countries, you know, being on that journey to kind of, you know, being part of the European uh, sort of family, you know, with um, with strength and democracy, you know, increased trade, you know, uh, better gender equality, all the things that, you know, all the things that the EU stands for. I think that. I think that would be a good thing, but I, I actually don't think it will happen quickly. So anybody who, you know, so the Spanish saying what they're saying um, is fair enough in a way, because there are still, there are still um, standards. Yeah, there are still standards and programs. But, but I mean, social, social standards though. I mean, you look at Hungary, a country like Hungary who has a horrible, horrible record on social yeah. standards under Orban. So, you know, you could see why, and I'm not necessarily in favour of this, but you could see why people like Zelensky will be drawing those comparisons and, and, and trying to make the case for Ukrainian membership EU. I just want to ask you really quickly before we move on, on to um, about two EU members, founding EU members, but Sweden and Finland, who have both, you know, been threatened by Russia um over abandoning their kind of historic neutrality especially finland i mean mm. obviously finland have had major conflicts with the with the former soviet union and russia in the past and and russia well putin is now saying and russian spokespeople are now suggesting that they'll face serious military and political consequences if they do join nato is this just another conflation of the eu and nato again because 
I understand what you're saying and it's a good point because what people need to remember and understand is that NATO was born out of the Second World War and the beginning of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. The, the EU is, is absolutely nothing like that. It's, it's, it's an, it began as an economic bloc, um, yeah. whereas NATO is obviously primarily a military alliance. So what, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that and if you'd had any discussions with maybe any contacts in Finland or Sweden or colleagues from the European Parliament. Um, so I've got really good friends from the socialist and, you know, from the party of European socialists who are in all those countries. And I didn't think it's in their kind of nature, if I can say this. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's in their kind of character in a way um, to, uh, to do the NATO thing. Um, it, in a way, I think it would be, it would, it would be a really big leap. I think for those countries to sell that to their to their citizens, yeah, partic yeah. particularly to their young people. Um, I mean, you know, the Swedish the Swedish government um, has been promoting feminist foreign policy. You know what? What? You know, <laughs> it just doesn't. It kind of doesn't compute for me. Yeah, I know that. I know that Finland particularly really feels this kind of increased threat. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I think, yeah, I, I, I don't see, I don't see, I don't see those countries kind of immediately rushing, you know, uh, begging, begging NATO, you know, to, to, to be part of the Alliance. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, I understand um, how, how frightening it is for people in Estonia, Lithuania, and Lat Latvia, for example. Um, mm. Also, um, what is happening? Uh, and world leaders, and particularly leaders um, in NATO countries, need to be very mindful of the words that they are saying. And Liz Truss has actually exacerbated the situation you know so we have got government ministers and a leader who can't do diplomacy basically they can't do it yeah that yeah. you know their talk is is not the talk of diplomacy and peace and that is a massive problem because that just aggravates you know it just kind of ramps everything up and i think we have to find another way and the other way is um it is, you know, is to talk about dialogue, you know, is, um, it, it, yeah, it, it has to be about, it has to be about dialogue, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, there is, there is a possibility that Putin's threats will just push these countries towards NATO rather than, um, it, it makes the threats more legitimate, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, as you say and suggested, that there is huge historical connotations, especially for Finland, when it comes to conflict with Russia. And I, I just think, yeah, um, what you say is right, and there does need to be more focus on dialogue. And I think the way Putin and his spokespeople have dialed up that rhetoric in recent days in terms of Finland and Sweden and other countries, I think that will actually push them towards a greater military, maybe not NATO, but may maybe a greater military cooperation with 
the EU and the United States and the West. Yes, um, yeah, but the EU has been talking for some time about a common defence and security policy. You know, yeah. it was very, very controversial when I was there. And, you know, UKIP and Nigel Farage and the Brexit people were always talking about, you know, the EU army. Well, we didn't have one, you know, we didn't have an EU army. And, um, but I do think that, um, an increased common uh, security and defence policy is really, really important for the EU. And to recognise that many of the threats actually are, are very different. Cyber warfare, you know, Putin has not just been conducting a, a, a war on the ground or in the air. He's been conducting an information war, yeah, you know, sure. for... for for, for almost a decade, we've been subject, you know, we, we our own democracy has been interfered with, you know, the incredible guardian, uh, the incredible journalist, Carol Cadwallader is the person to go to if you don't know what's been going on. And, um, uh, you know, again, our own democracy was interfered with, you know, Putin, Putin, um, was laughing, you know, at Brexit. Brexit was a great success for him. The election of Trump was a great success for Putin because dividing people is, is kind of what he wants to do, you know? So he's continuing to, to, so, to, to divide people. And um, so, so, so ramping up these information wars, you know, is all par for the course. Now, I, I don't see, you know, NATO getting involved in, in all of that, but the EU is onto that, right? Mm. And I do say this with some, uh, with some knowledge, because in 2014, I was a rapporteur for a European Parliament report called Propaganda Against the EU. And when I was given this report, I thought it was going to be about UKIP, and it wasn't. Mm. It was all about Russia. So, wow. you know, this is way before anybody else was talking about what was going what on. So, yeah, so my research for that report was, you know, to find out about all the troll factories, to, you know, see what yeah. uh, was happening with uh, uh, Russia Today and Sputnik TV and all the rest of it. You know, we were very, very aware of it at that point. Well, we did touch there. Thank you for that, Julie. We did touch there on Liz Truss. It's a nice little segue into our own comment on how our own government is, is handling this crisis. And just, well, despite the rhetoric for, from Boris Johnson and his government, there, there is a huge difference, isn't there, in the way that EU member states are treating Ukrainian refugees. Just off the bat, the, the EU for the first time has implemented temporary protection directive, which for listeners, if, you, if you're not aware, that will give Ukrainian nationals the right to live and work in the EU for up to three years. The public may, well, can be forgiven, shall we say, for believing that the UK response to this crisis has, has been positive and in actual fact, it is, it is certainly subpar to say the very least. I just wondered what your thoughts are on that, Julie. Well, you know, sometimes I'm, ash I'm ashamed to be British because our government has, um, you know, has uh, gone on a path of, you know, kind of othering and um, ramping up xenophobia and, you know, uh, not been welcoming at all to people fleeing conflict and unsustainable lives. So um, it, it's it's been quite it's been quite embarrassing, actually, to see um, our government make it so difficult for people, um, for, for fellow Europeans, yeah. you know, who are under attack and fleeing yeah. um, to make it so difficult for them to come to this country. Um, 
it, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's also quite strange to watch Poland and Hungary, you know, opening sure, their yeah. arms to um, refugees who look and like them, as, op mm. as opposed to refugees from, you know, Africa or the Middle East, for example. Sure, yeah. You know, that, that has been quite strange. And um, it's not been picked up enough in the media that has it. I think the Guardians had run a couple of pieces with it, but it's something that should have been discussed more, actually. Our response to, or not our response, but the European response to this cri refugee crisis has been different to, say, the response to the Syrian crisis, for example. Yes, I always said that there was no refugee crisis because the refugee crisis was really in Lebanon. You know, if we're talking mm. about the war with Syria, it wasn't yeah. in Europe. It was a very small number of refugees yeah. coming to Europe, frankly. Yeah, I agree. So, Absolutely. you know, and, and we've taken, we've never taken our fair share in the no. UK. You know, even when the Conservative government were sort of dragged, kicking and screaming to agree to accept unaccompanied minors they then were not proactive about that and no. you know and ended the scheme before they'd even reached the number that they had promised to had promised to give sanctuary to so um yeah i mean i i i can sense in i can sense really across europe a great outpouring um, of compassion and we have to, we, you know, and, and people are remembering, you know, the people are thinking about the Second World War. I know yeah. that they're thinking about a war in Europe and what that did and, you know, and what that did to our countries, our communities, our relationships with each other, our economy, you know, the horrendous numbers of people who were killed, um, both civilians and servicemen and women. Um, so I, I, you know, I can sense that myself, seeing the EU's kind of very unified response to this yeah. has been good. What we need to do beyond this is to then apply those principles of welcome to other people fleeing yes. um, conflict and unsustainable lives. And I prefer not to, dis to, to, to distinguish between uh, migrants who are escaping, you know, uh, desertification and mm. countries where you can't grow any crops and yeah. you know uh, where, where where climate change has basically ruined your you know ruined any any possibility of you having a harvest yeah. i think that we've got to accept we have a responsibility globally for the state of the world and that means you know we our, our you know our pumping out of um carbon and our industrialization you know has has made it um, has made many countries be worse affected. Low lying, low lying, low lying island um, states, for example. Yeah, so I I am pleased with what is happening at EU level, and um, I think we need to we need to be very we need to be very careful to make sure that this is a kind of learning experience, you know, for different EU governments, member state governments, yes. and you know, transfer those principles and practices um, into the way that we receive, welcome, treat, integrate all refugees in it's the very, future. It's very, it's very similar, isn't it? The, you talk about opportunities. There is an opportunity here with refugees, but there's also an opportunity to wean the West off Russian energy. 
And I think it's very similar and very striking that it's taken an invasion of a, of a, of a European democracy to, to, to really kickstart these conversations that we've talked about for years into action. And I think, yeah, I think, I think there's, a, there's a lot of opportunities here and I hate to talk about opportunity, it. Yeah. Opportunity. People, people are suffering, but at the same time, you know, um, uh, if some good can come from some yes, well, things, then... everything um, came from the. I mean, that's the society. All the best things in our society come from the the post World War consensus, didn't it? And, and that Lee's government, but we saw that across Europe as well. I, I think the. I think you're absolutely right, Julie, in terms of the the sentiment, certainly across Europe. But I think that sentiment is in is widespread across the UK as well. People are looking at this uh, at this war with absolute horror and their heart goes out to everybody in Ukraine and I think there is a lot of solidarity and since the announcement of that the the government will be facilitating Ukrainian refugees to be able to come to the UK and live in people's homes uh, you know anecdotally on Facebook and uh, you'll know from well you perhaps you don't know but I'm a, ca- a counsellor in Leeds and, and on our Facebook groups and the community groups that sometimes can be quite right wing there's been a lot of chat about this and saying that the, a lot of people standing up and saying you know I'm going to offer my home to right. a Ukrainian refugee as well so I hope the UK government picks up on that and, and changes course pretty soon I've got to say though as much as I would like to sit here and talk for another couple of hours I think that's going to have to be it for today Julie it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you and as I mentioned before your your personal experiences both in the immediate in that you've just come back from Ukraine but also your past experience as well and your links to Ukraine I'm sure will really resonate with people and, and, and make it just that little bit more real and help people to understand what's happening there so we really can't thank you enough I wasn't anticipating that actually when we offered you to come on the podcast I thought you we you were going to come on and, and be a, an expert as to European politics and what's going on but I think actually this podcast is, has been all the better from the conversation that we've had so I can't thank you enough it really has been a pleasure to have you on Thank you you know politics is about people and if we're not talking about people you know we can talk about we can talk about single market we can talk about eu directives we can talk about you know all, all kinds of laws or whatever but if we have to remember that all our politics has to apply to people at the end of the day um and the people who are suffering now you know yeah. we have to think it could be us yeah could be us that's so true because before this conflict started, many a time did I go to the pub with a group of people that know know a bit about politics and and talk about this in in, in all very theoretical terms. It was almost like a game of risk and this huge global crisis that's looming and how will it affect oil prices and and what strategic move is Putin going to make and how and how will that affect NATO relations or somebody's accession into the EU when you're having those sort of conversations the lived experience of people on the ground is absolutely lost when you talk about things in those terms and and I think that's why it's been so useful to talk in a more personalized way that we have done today and yeah huge thanks to Open Labour actually for doing this podcast but also for the resolution that was made at the conference at the weekend. Oh, you um, saw that, did you? Very good. Yes. Well, I'm a member. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I will be, I will be um, forwarding that to my Ukrainian friends so that they, um, you know, they can continue to feel that that people here in the UK, um, particularly people on the left, on the progressive yeah. internationalist left, um, are, uh, you know, are thinking about them. You know. Yes hoping that there is a better future for them. 
absolutely it was passed unanimously it's worth saying as well so right julie thank you so much 